So cost is one huge turning point over the last 10, 15 years. And then the other piece is resilience. And this is becoming unbelievably important wherever you are, whether you're in Texas, or you're in South Dublin, or you know, you're in Xi'an in China, energy security and resilience. And I think that that is what's going to drive a lot of firming of the grid, decentralization, productivity, efficiency improvements. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Fedderson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And my guest on the show today founded Sustainable Development Capital, LLP, in 2007, uh, at a time when sustainable development wasn't really a big thing in investing. He's deployed uh, billions of dollars in sustainable infrastructure, broadly speaking, well beyond just the narrow power generation field. He studied modern history at Oxford. Uh, my guest on the show today is Jonathan Maxwell, CEO of SDCL LLP. Welcome, Jonathan. Great. Thank you so much for having me, John. Yeah, we're delighted to have you here. I'd like to start with your personal history a little bit. And the first question that springs to mind is why? So as I said in the intro, you, you started a, a business focusing on sustainable development capital in 2007. Yeah. Why, first of all, why did you start your own business at that point in time? What was the motivation for doing something on your own in general? Uh, and also why focus on sustainable investing uh, more broadly? For the few years before I started the business, I had a, a fantastic opportunity, actually, John. Um, I worked at HSBC Infrastructure and um, really got to understand um, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure investment business and um, in fact also got to understand the interface between infrastructure and the capital market quite intimately because um, back then in 2005-06 infra infrastructure investing was all about private equity infrastructure whereas uh, it, after after um, I left HSBC it was actually in the public market so to my uh, one of the things I did was actually ran, a, ran the IPO of HSBC's infrastructure portfolio to create Europe's first main market listed infrastructure investment company. So um, I had a fantastic experience of working with HSBC Infrastructure. Uh, the team is now uh, trading as infrared and uh, it was really extremely formative and um, I'm grateful to all of them actually for oh. my education there. But one of the and things- And hugely that, influential now uh, across Europe, certainly. Yes, the, the legacy con continues. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it was tremendously successful, and it built on, on on the solid foundations that they laid back then. The um, I, I suppose, having said that, um, you know, in the year or so after the um, uh, the infrastructure flotation, um, I had an amazing opportunity. Candidly, uh, again, uh, two thousand and six is when we got the IPO of HSBC Infrastructure Company or Hickel done. Um, we, uh, China, as you might remember, had been in the World Trade Organization for five years only by then, uh, whereas HSBC had been in China for 140 years continuously. Yep. And we, uh, I say I, we had an interesting idea, which was to, to do a real estate investment 
program, in fact, investment fund for China. Um, uh, and uh, well, how on earth, you ask, could that get me into the sustainable infrastructure? Mm. It was on my mind. Yeah, it was on my <laughs> mind, yes. Well, you know, what was so fascinating about the process, and I sort of flew to China and you know, spent a lot of time in a lot of cities in China and found, for one reason or another, that environmental degradation was just staring me in the face. You know, so you'd go to Beijing and the sky was pink and it's because of all the, back then, because of all the deforestation and mm. dust blowing in from the Mongolian desert. You'd go to Shanghai and you couldn't see down the street, but then it was because of construction dust. Um, and, you know, you'd go to, whether it's either of those two cities or anywhere else, and trees had died of thirst off the avenues because the aquifers were depleted. So this concept of where the environment interfaces with infrastructure and real estate really hit me very, very hard in 2006-07 on my journey, business journey through China, candidly. And what struck me was unless we manage our what I started to describe as environmental infrastructure rather than the social and economic infrastructure that I'd been used to dealing with, unless we manage our environmental infrastructure effectively and efficiently, then um, actually the impact on our economy, let alone our health, is going to be potentially catastrophic. Um, so this was a sort of the big, strangely enough, although all the real estate investments at the time were very successful, the big takeaway for me was, my goodness, if we, you know, there's this, uh, if, this is really like looking into the future. You know, this is what happens if you don't manage your environmental assets and environmental infrastructure. And this is not a criticism of China either, because in 2006, the 11th five-year plan actually for China completely understood this, completely uh -huh. understood the impact of environment, environment on economic uh, GDP and stated probably to, to this day the most progressive policies on energy efficiency and environmental infrastructure investment that, uh, that that have really ever happened. So I came back to the bank at HSBC. I had got a great idea. I said, let's create a dedicated division to focus on environmental infrastructure. Um, and they said, Jonathan, it's a great idea, um, you know, but we're not ready yet. I said, well, to answer your question, John, I am. So um, uh, completely naively, um, uh, I came on, on very friendly terms and still extremely good friends with everybody there. But um, said, look, I'd like to start my own firm to focus on environmental infrastructure. And I did it. Um, uh, and you're right, 2007, sustainability or sustainable investing, although renewables was already a very sophisticated market, you know, the, the concept. Oh, even in 2007, you think? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that already you're getting levels of financial sophistication into the market for sure. Um, but, I, but you know, so I, I felt that there was a, uh, in a, a, a market there, but I also saw that there were gaps, and I'll come on to them, our focus on energy efficiency and decentralization and so on, mm -hmm. uh, which that 13, 14 years later, there are still gaps, um, yeah. which, which is interesting. But, um, uh, you know, th that's why I started the business. Uh, it's why I started Sustainable Development Capital. And because of the nascence of the industry, candidly, it's why the name Sustainable Development Capital was so easy to acquire. Back in okay, you couldn't do that now. You have to come <laughs> up with something far more off off piste. Um, is so just and like roughly speaking, it's interesting. One of the most interesting things I heard you say then is that the industry was reasonably developed as you saw it in two thousand and seven. Yet at the moment, even today, it seems like you feel like there's some white space. And, you know, it's it's crowding, but there's white space in terms of you know. Let's just say we were kind of ten percent of the way along the journey to like mature markets for sustainable good you know sustainable infrastructure everywhere yeah. and, and there's some sort of utopia 100 percent of the way there presumably we're not there yet 
and we were, where are, how far along the journey do you think we are? You uh, do it in terms of years, maybe. If, you know, how, how, how far are we from this utopia of, you know, I don't know, it's, it, everything's being measured accurately, um, you know, environmental goods are being commoditized and valued for, for, the, for the social good they provide. Well, look, you know, you, you, you've, you've made one answer to the question is that, you know, we've had a bit of a policy earthquake in Europe, at least, right, which is that the European Commission has now said that they want to be not 80, 90 percent, but carbon neutral, right, by 2050. So let's put mm. a date on that and have a look at the next 30 years. Um, and let's be optimistic for a second that, you know, that's achievable and it's going to take a sort of very fundamental shift in methods and so on. Um, <clears throat> How far are we along the way? I think I think we should really um, acknowledge that we are a, a, we've done more than we're accused of um, so far. I think I think there is a, a I think a quite a sophisticated um, cost competitive renewable energy market um, yep, that's able yep, to sure. bring uh, power onto the grid. That really has been uh, I talk about two thousand and seven, but you're right. The last decade really has been the, the, the turning yep. point or the real scaling up of that industry and the technologies associated not just wind farms and solar parks but offshore and so on so the last decade i think has done a great deal of good actually to bring renewables onto the grid but the the, the, the provocative side of that is most of our energy economies are still desperately inefficient um, and even with the renewables penetration um you know you're still looking at grid efficiency meaning the amount of energy that's generated that actually gets to the point of use on uh, on uh, electrical grids let alone the thermal side of the energy equation, you know, at very low levels. So we're talking rough. I, my get, my provocative statement, Aurora is the expert, is that we waste about sixty percent of the energy generated mm-hmm. in Europe and North America before it gets to the point of use, and then when the energy gets there, another, you can waste another 30 percent. So, so you know, we we, sure. we remain. If you're talking about that journey, how do we then get into productivity, and energy energy productivity, and energy efficiency, and growth because we'll yeah. really get into growth when we start to get that, those uh, those issues addressed yeah. I, I, and i'll be slightly slightly uh, uh provocative on this one i think we're, we're pretty much nowhere compared mm-hmm. to <laughs> compared to where we're going to be in 10 years time so so yeah. the optimist in me says look you know if you then say okay uh, european union and for that matter the united states have all now made very significant commitments towards carbon reduction if not carbon neutrality then the other thing that they've all said is look you can't get there just by looking at the supply side alone it doesn't yeah. work you know you've got to look at the demand side and, and while, although we are at the uh, very early stages of that still 14 years later from when i started the firm i'm hugely optimistic uh, that actually the next decade is going to be a very substantial turning point. And, mm. and, and apart from anything else, it is so written in European policy and United States policy yeah. and has it, been for a long time in China. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to get a, get away from the fact that it's just an enormous... I mean, it feels like the rate of change over the last five or ten years has been enormous, and it has. But when you look at things like Joe Biden saying net zero grid by 2035, yeah. um, the speed just has to go up massively yeah. or, or we don't get there. And, and, right. and, you know, I think there are a lot more losers. There are a lot more losers who bet against progress on decarbonisation over the last five or ten years than, yeah. than, than losers who bet for it. So, um, Well, well I, I, think, I think part of that 
you know, there are three things that underpin it rather than just wishful thinking and, you know, doing good. Uh, three very, very, very important things, right? I mean, we talked about decarbonization, but I think de- decarbonization has been a, become a political and a business imperative now. Uh, from from a, well, go into all of that because your listeners will understand everything there. But, but there are two really hard ends of it, one of which is financial and one of which is about security. So on the financial side, what's been demonstrated is that a lot of the clean air energy solutions are cheaper. Um, you know, you can make the argument very easily about decentralization and efficiency, but you can also make the argument about renewable power. Uh, yep. It just happens to be cheaper in, in many, in many applications. Yeah. So cost is one huge tra- turning point over the last 10, 15 years. And then the other uh, piece is resilience. And this is becoming unbelievably important uh, wherever you are, whether you're in Texas or you're in South Dublin or, you know, you're in Xi'an in China, energy security and resilience. And I think that oh, that, that is what's going to drive a lot of, you know, firming of the grid, decentralization, productivity, efficiency improvements. Mm. And do you think just to digress briefly on that, I mean, in the past, when we talked about energy security, we didn't talk about, uh, you know, a blizzard in a blizzard in Dallas, we talked about the Middle East oil supplies, right? Do you think that argument, the global geopolitical argument for energy security is is receding and 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 it's and it's more about making sure we have enough of the right stuff uh to to, to ensure we have plentiful power whenever we need it yeah i look i i, I just my my day-to-day is more about the the, the boots on yeah. the ground rather than the you know the, the geopolitical angst yeah. um of course they go hand in hand if you can source energy locally um uh candidly it's a it's a massive game changer on the geopolitical side but no, I think most of it for us is bottom up. It's about, you know, post Sandy in New York, you know, there was tremendous concerns about, um, you know, sort of grid availability, uh, massive problems in the healthcare and industrial sectors. Uh, obviously, we've just had Texas. Um, UK, Southeast uh, uh, England is a great example uh, from where I'm sitting today. In a, if you, any, any day, if you go on and look at the local area network, you'll see the number of power failures or grid outages and and, and, yeah. in a, in, in, and in a world where we rely exactly on what we're doing now which is communicating over you know lines of communication we rely on 24 7 data um you know you can't afford interruptions or inter- mm-hmm. you know, in, in the grid or interruptibility or or if, or if you're a hyperscale data center operator or a hospital or an industrial facility it's reliability and energy security is really important in town and i'm when i talk about town i'm in london new york Yes, I mean, Europe and North America in general, just as anywhere else. So, so, you know, the energy security and resilience issue, I think, is just as important here as it might be in any other part of the world. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And I'd like to pick up that topic of resilience of decentralized versus centralized Mm -hmm. energy systems a little bit later on. The the other interesting thing that struck me, just as a small point, was this this story of sort of China entering the World Trade Organization, obviously 2001, I believe it was. Um, I think you could you could argue and I think many would actually that in that entry, you know, while it drove a lot of industrialization and, and industrial trade, it, it actually drove a lot of 
pollution and degradation locally and then that story of uh regulators catching up quickly not yeah. not not quite on top yeah. of it and i'm yeah. not sure i would ever want a regulator out in front of what's actually yeah. happening i think comfortably a little bit behind is a good place yeah. for a regulator to be but it's um there's a great there's a great economics paper one of my favorite economics papers about um the near extinction of the north american bison uh in in the in the uh after just after the american civil war and it's a very similar story actually it is uh it's about openness to trade there's a you know the argument goes there's an innovation in europe and basically we had we had uh i think it was at least hundreds of millions of these things uh, you know down to several hundred in the herd because of of trade to Europe um, and a, and a, and a technological shock. Now the regulators got on top of it just in time, uh, yeah. but but it could have been a disaster. So Scott Taylor, Buffalo Hunt is the, is How the fantastic. article. Anyway, um, no, the, 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 my turning point was a paper by Elizabeth Economy and Panieri of the State Environmental Protection Agency in two thousand and six, which is a very similar analysis, which said, look, you know, this is great, but we're losing however much it was 12 percent of GDP through environmental degradation. And then, hang on, that sounds ridiculous, but let's break that down in billions of dollars of water and air pollution, acid rain, deforestation, cutting yep. off, uh, you know, uh, sandstorms closing down factories, uh, people dying in town as they do today, I'm sort of afraid in London, from, except in lockdown from, you know, uh, air pollution and so on. And, and, and really the quantification of it was, was, was shocking, but, it, mm. but and I'm not saying it was that led to another, but the 2006, five-year plan for, um, uh, you know, for the 11th one for China, then said, well, hold on a second, we're going to do something about it. We're going to, you know, hook or crook, we're going to get 4% per annum energy efficiency, yeah, energy, yeah. energy productivity yeah. increases, you know, and so, so you do end up with these um, step changes. And I think we're capable of doing that in Europe and North America too. Yeah, interesting. Just one other point on the, his the history of STCL. Um, you, so you were a newspaper editor at university. You were the editor of the <laughs> Word newspaper in Oxford, and 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 I and I, I gather you owned it at one point. Yink! Were you always an entrepreneur? Did you did you think you were always destined to start your own your own business? And I should add, you're not the first guest on this podcast to have been an editor at an Oxford University newspaper. Um, so it seems it seems to be part of the path to greatness in the energy sector, at least. But did, did you always know you were going to start something? I, I always have started things, yeah. I mean, but um, uh, I, I, I have to say, I, I, having said that, and I've only had three jobs, really, you know, had a sort of a long stint in stockbroking, quite a decently long stint about the same time at HSBC, and then I started this place 14 years ago. But, you know, when I was at university, yeah, I mean, I ran, I, I set up businesses. I had a tour guide business rather than with my friends who were, doing other things during the summer um uh you know yeah, far less productive no doubt yeah. but you know I, I i you know i think you know sort of mo motivation of what you do and what you love and you know um I, as you probably as a co-founder of aurora i probably don't mind saying this to you but you know not every day is 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 bliss but i'm completely no. motivated every day and i know exactly why i'm coming into work and i create the place that i want to work in yeah it, it just one, one one more thing then i want to talk about the sustainable investment area more broadly so you studied modern history does that does that in any way influence what you do on a day-to-day -day basis now yeah so after three years of study um i went uh, i went to a, le a, a, le a lesson quite rare as you 
might know in Oxford, you have like one lesson a week in a history degree. But uh, my, my lesson was what to do for your finals. And uh, the, 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 the tutor said to me, so listen, actually, only two things you've got to remember. Right? Say what you're going to say, say it, and then say that you said it. So that was, that's how to approach the exams. Um, the second thing he said was the most, one of the most important things I've ever heard. And I was annoyed because I wish he'd have told me three years before. But he said, actually, there's only really one question you need to ask. So what? Um, you know, and I think that that is really important. It's yeah. really important in business. It's really important, particularly in sustainability. Um, and it's a really important attribute, I think, of um, doing business generally, let alone needing one, which I think is always to, 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 to inquire and, you know, want to understand and, 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 uh, and know the answers. But really, what was, I think that key question, <laughs> to be honest with you, John, is the one that okay. I carry with me every day. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a very good point. Again, I concur entirely on uh, so what is a, is, a, is a fundamental question. As you say, a lot of, you know, a lot of the information was already there uh, in terms of the, the direction the world was going in, in the past, but just that ability to, to connect the dots and see what the implications were uh, is, is elusive uh, yeah. at, at times. Yeah, there's a wonderful book uh, written not by a historian, but by a geographer called uh, Collapse by Jared Diamond, How, to, how Societies you know, Choose to Fail or Succeed. Yep. And there's a snobby Oxford historian reading somebody's history book that's not a historian is sometimes a bit difficult to do. But I thought... I thought that it was an amazing analysis of what can happen to societies that don't look after their environmental infrastructure. Yeah. It might, still to today might be the best uh, treatise ever on that, in my Interesting. view. Uh, so, yeah, I think for the, history has a lot to offer us in terms of uh, figuring out how we approach the future. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, excellent. So, so let's focus on SDCL now. So a big part of your mandate focuses on energy efficiency. Yeah. Um, so there's a broad question of why, but but uh, I suppose the reason I think that's a relevant question is one, energy. There are very few people for whom energy efficiency is their core business. Right. You know, it's it, it seems to me. You know, you've got um, you've got uh, some energy intensive industries, although they're a vanishingly small proportion of GD. P, you know, it's a single digit percent, I imagine. And you've got some sort of green image seekers. Um, but it's not it's not core business for many. And your know, households and things like that, you know, the, the level of disengagement with efficient energy efficiency is 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 very high. Uh, and, and and so I suppose from that context, if it's not core business, how how do you, you know, how do you convince someone to actually spend time and effort thinking about it and how to do it better? And then how do you turn that into a useful investment proposition. Yeah, I think um, I, I first of all, I think we have to. There are two sort of there are two places to find energy efficiency. One is in residential buildings, which I won't cover today, but I should say that up front because actually the biggest chunk of energy efficiency is in residential, um, and you know a lot of that is about. I said I won't cover it today, but a lot of that is about appliances, um, you know, and sort of building fabrication and so on, and. Uh, the, 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 where we invest, which I think is what you're asking about, is in the commercial and industrial sector. Uh, to, and and, and then you, there you've got to ask yourself, where, where is energy used? And, you know, the fact, the fact is we all, quite often we focus on supply, the point I made before. That's certainly been the policy framework for the last 10, 15 years has been about bringing new supply into the market. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if you look at the demand side, where is energy used? 
then you know 40% of it's used in buildings um, rounding, give, round, giving you round numbers, but 40% is used in buildings and about 20% in transport. So, you know, the, the, it's important when looking at the energy market, I would say, so going back to the so what, to look at where, you know, where's the demand and then, and then you know, how do we address the demand side of the equation? Um, yeah. So, you know, within that context, if you take residential to one side for a second, the, the, where the energy is used in those buildings is com- on the commercial industrial side is, we touched on it, actually, Big data, data centers, telecommunications, a massive uh, energy user in today's uh, economy, as much as airlines, certainly, if not more. Um, Hospitals uh, use energy all day, every day, all year. Industrial facilities that still make stuff, even, God forbid, steel mills that make wind turbines and things like this. So so, so we do have a very, very big end user story here mm-hmm. and this is before you get to mobility so it's just the stuff that doesn't move around and you know i think i think that's where we see some big opportunities for energy efficiency but you're also right that you very rarely if ever get anyone in a company who's head of energy efficiency i mean that must yeah. be the worst the worst title in fact the rarest title in fact you re- quite often rarely get anybody who's head of energy for, mm. for a business you don't really hear the chief energy officer so so you know what, what this is quite a different mindset about how to how to deal with energy and who the people are who the stakeholders are and the way that at least we've been thinking about it for the last 14 years is on the three metrics that i talked to you about before one of which is carbon now the good news for for companies and governments is that yes there are a lot of people worried about carbon these days for one reason or another the second is cost and the good news about that is that never well briefly in late 1999 but it never goes out of fashion to save money uh, so cost efficiency is really important, and that's a huge driver. And then this other point about resilience. So where you get where you get high carbon sensitive businesses, let's call it data centers as an example, and they're cost sensitive because they guzzle yeah. energy, and that's the major running cost. And so they're carbon and cost sensitive, and they're worried about availability of power or resilience. Yeah. Then you've got your perfect opportunity to deliver either decentralized low carbon energy solutions to the point of use, which is one side of the efficiency for inefficient supply, or you've got the opportunity to help reduce the energy demand footprint of the building. And this this, this is, becomes extremely important um, no. today. You know, and I would say, having said that, you know, I, I'm afraid if, if you were to measure us on our capital deployment volumes, having said all of this, these arguments have been there for the last 10, 15 years. However, our deployment has grown pretty much exponentially over the last three or four. Yeah. So I'd say this, these themes have really bitten where it all comes together. It's not enough to be cost-focused or resilient-focused. I think it's got to be a combination of carbon cost and resilience. Yeah, and I suspect you know cost, even over the last two or three years, has become a more powerful right. you know, dr- dr- driver here. You know, Convincing someone to put solar panels on their roof at 250 quit a megawatt hour it was was a difficult game no no matter how much they want to reduce their carbon footprint i imagine look it's a really important point um uh really important point the obvious side of that absolutely so so i mean you know i i got particularly excited about rooftop solar pv for example not myself not five years ago not 10 years ago but a year and a half two years ago because Mm -hmm. what became evident in the work that we were doing is we could deliver rooftop solar at the same price, if not cheaper than the grid, with no subsidy, no tax credits, no funny business, just simply commercial deal with an end customer. So we won a contract 
which we've been executing against, for example, with Tesco's, yeah. sort of perfectly good, cost-sensitive, sensible, major counterparty in the UK, large, UK's largest retailer to do solar PV. But it was what got me excited, particularly excited about it, other than the privilege of working at Tesco's, was the opportunity to deliver sort of cost-efficient renewable power. And and indeed, yeah. we, just, we actually, just before Christmas last year, just signed our first really large rooftop solar carport uh, and storage project in the US or portfolio in the US where we partnered up with Blackstone mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to deliver um, you know, uh, solar across the US um, on commercial and industrial properties and public sector assets. So I, I agree with you. And you know, I think the game has changed really quite recently on some technologies like uh, PV, some new applications like storage. Um, when I started doing LED lighting retrofits, John, I really didn't understand in 2012 why somebody wouldn't want to change a lamp for another lamp, where the one lamp that you replaced it with would use 90% less yeah. energy. I couldn't get why this was such a difficult sell. But it, 10 years ago, it wasn't normal. Only 2% of the world's lights were efficient. Now, 61% of the world's lights were efficient. So we've we've seen a big change in the last 10 years, and it hasn't been a straight line. It's been pretty fast for the last two or three years. So blink. Five years ago, this market wasn't there. Look yeah. at it today, and it's big. And and it has. I, I I'd like to bring it up a little bit later because what you've just said about Tesco and 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 behind the meter generation has profound implications for the future of the of the power grid. Yes, it does. Um, what just on the LED point? It's cheaper. It's miles yeah. cheaper. Everyone yeah. should be doing it. You're having these conversations with people saying, "Hey, yeah. I can save you a whole bunch of money." Here are the maths. What what stops, you know, you said it wasn't normal. Is that what stops it? Is it just someone saying, hang on, I don't care enough about this that I want to save that money? Or, 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 you know, is it no one ever got fired for the status quo? So let's not, let's not get too creative. What's the impediment? Yeah, I think, I think, I think the innovation challenge is bigger than the cost problem. Um, there's a lot of psychology that goes into this, by the way, yeah. particularly when you're talking about energy savings. It's, a, it's quite a complex area, and again, probably for another day. But yeah. back then in 2012, there was quite a lot that was unproven. Um, okay, okay. You you, uh, uh, not, not that the technology was unlikely to work, but it just the experience has, wasn't there. So, you know, if you yeah. put LEDs in a banqueting facility in a five-star hotel, people are going to like ambience. it. Yeah, you yeah. know, or, or if you're going to put them in stores. You know, yeah. will it make the clothes or the food look funny? Um, yeah. So there's there's that element to it. Um, there was the performance element, and then just the experience. And I and I think you know fundamentally the technology hasn't moved on that much really over the last ten years. But it's the deployment is the big game changer. Two percent to sixty one percent. It's more normal than not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the um, but before we get to the, the grid implications, so you you make you emphasise as as an organisation the measurement of your ESG yeah. credentials. How, how do you do it? So you talked about carbon cost, presumably cost isn't an ESG metric, maybe it is, resilience. How, how, do you, how do you go about quantifying this so that someone can say, right, SDCL, they're here and someone else is here or, so, or, someone, or SDCL, they were here and now they're here? Yeah. You know? Lower to so, well, well, look, you know, I'll give you the, I'll, I'll answer the question and I'll give you a bit of background. But the question is, we, we have certain key metrics that we quantify, we measure and we quantify and we report on. So, mm-hmm. and do idea. you come up with those or is, is there a, is there a generally accepted standard on this type of thing? There are some standards. Yeah. Um, there are some standards and there's, there's loads of standards. Um, and I'll sort of come back to 
that in yeah. a second. But the, to answer your question specifically, we measure tons of CO2 emissions saved. Yeah. Uh, we measure megawatt of hours of energy saved. We measure megawatt hours of renewable energy generated. So there's different, to answer your questions in, the, in this data way, it yeah. reports into certain of these frameworks, right? We measure yeah. something which is quite unusual, which I enjoy talking about tremendously, which is, which is million megawatts, meaning mm -hmm. the amount of megawatts that are taken out of the energy economy by replacing, you know, the old for the good. Um, and then we measure, uh, we, we measure uh, things like job creation, candidly. So, you know, we talk about ESG, it's, it goes, goes beyond E into other, other things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think um, then, then there's, there's other things which I think will evolve. Like, you know, there's a big argument around electric cars, not argument, but the, but the major argument in favor is often packaged up within the climate argument, which I think is fine. And, um, you know, you are after all displacing uh, an energy efficient use of one fuel for something that should be more efficient in, in electrons. However, 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 um, one of the main reasons I do it is because my kids live in central London and central London is considered many times the levels considered safe by the World Health Organization yeah. for air pollution. And, you know, it's as much that particular emissions, NOx and SOx associated with driving. Yeah. Being town. a good London citizen. Well, it's, it's, it's environmental pollution. It, yeah. it's, it's before you get to carbon, it's basically killing people. More people in London pre, pre, pre the lockdown died of uh, premature lung disease than they did from road traffic accidents. So there's, mm. there's other things other than carbon that we look at and, and we'll get better at measuring going forward. But yes, yeah. and then, then on top of all of that, you've got frameworks that we report into. So UN, uh, PRI, Principles of Responsible Investment, which evolves. So the minute you think you understand it, John, you don't because the rules mm -hmm. will change for you the next year, which is, is fine. That's what it's designed to do to keep people on their toes. But it's it's um it's a constantly evolving, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of carrot you're chasing. Sustainable development goals is something that I actually enjoy looking at and making sure that we are, align ourselves to. Um, so those are some of the features that we look at in ESG. But but I have to say the last thing I would say is this is you know if it's very important to us, uh, you know, it's the name of our door is not you know it is sustainable development capital that's what we do is why i set up the firm but investors now demand this and they demand the measurement um, mm. and reporting uh to standards which you know include all the ones i've mentioned today including things that don't even haven't even been enacted yet so for example with the draft eu taxonomy statements that are out there we have to get in front of those you know when we, we did a fundraising three or four weeks ago we were able to answer the questions, but the questions were about not how we comply with today's standards, but how we're going to comply with tomorrow's standards. Interesting. And so just a, a follow up on that, you know, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that we're moving away from, you know, the caricature of 80s style capitalism, strong emphasis on fiduciary duty, protecting, protecting shareholders' interests at all costs and towards a world in which not just companies, any organization operating needs to justify its social purpose and and that and, you know it's for employees it's to engage employees it's to engage customers you need to say what role am i playing for society not just yeah. for my shareholders to do business do you think we'll move away you know as this esg movement mature say 10 years from now do you think mm. we'll move away from a world in which 
you know, investment funds or organizations choose their sustainability criteria or their governance criteria. They could choose the develop, Millennium Development Goals or the or the UN Charter or, or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And they're put in a bit more of a straitjacket. And, and the sort of analog I have is the is the top morning star type, you know, fund manager portfolio ratings on risk, on value, uh, something that says, right, you know, okay, you can do your own reporting, but if you know if you want to be compared yeah. to others if you want to be attract big pools of capital yeah. you need to you know you need to be on this metric and tell us how you're performing on something that's that 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 is everyone is is consistent with i think that's the way that uh, i think i think that's the way that things uh, you know probably will go you know but i think it's a it's 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 going to be a very interesting journey to get from here to there, right? Um, and I and, and I don't know exactly what that looks like either because energy is quite a complex system, uh, you know. And we've seen policymakers struggle enough with what is sustainable. If you if you really ask somebody in Brussels um, what sustainable energy is, and you're going to get you're going to have a very broad range of uh, answers to that question, uh, or indeed. How we can possibly deliver some of the uh, you know higher level uh, objectives over the course of the next decade. So, so there are big questions we're going to be asking ourselves right over the next ten years, John. You know, do we sacrifice the good on the altar of the perfect? You know, do do we um, what do we want more than something else? Um, yeah. You know, big questions. You know, and you know, and what we thought was sustainable five years ago, is it still sustainable today? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so. I won't give any examples of diesel cars to electric within five or six years, but you know exactly. it, 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 it can, it's a very interesting, evolving answer. I hope I'm going to say this with at risk, uh, but I'll say it anyway. I hope we can avoid eco fanaticism, mm. um, and I and I hope we can really go back to that so what question. You know, am I doing good? You know, can I, am I improving? Am I making incremental? Yeah, you know, step and, and, and engaging. Yeah, and engaging in the debate and putting forward a suggestion on how it, it does feel like exactly this is this is so complicated. You know, in a, a good example is innovation, right? It's sort of, you know, if you rewind seven years or something like that, and you might have said, well, hang on, on a metric of carbon abated, onshore wind in the UK is much better than offshore wind. You get you get three times the bang for your buck. Yeah. Um, but of course, while we were deploying all that offshore wind, we were driving the cost down. Yeah, uh, innovations are public good. It's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. So if we if we start measuring a very and you can only measure a finite number of aspects, there is a there is, there is a risk, and it, it it does seem possibly you know the healthier outcome is one in which you know public public opinion and debate and an embrace of. <laughs> All sorts of shades of grey in the world. Well, yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. I had a. It reminds me of a conversation I had. Now you asked me about where this all started back in the two thousand and six seven trips to China. I remember sitting down in Hong Kong with a Hong Kong Chinese lawyer, and uh, completely unrelated to the environment. But he just leant across the table and said to me, "Well, you know what?" He said about something completely different. He said, "If it's not commercial, it's not sustainable." And it mm-hmm. really, um, uh, that's another one of those comments which has stuck on my mind, you know, almost every day ever since, because I think the answer to the question in 10 years is the things that are going to make a great deal of sense are going to attract the billions of dollars and are going to be commensurate with protecting shareholder value, which is after all, you know, the legal and fiduciary obligation of people like me and all the companies and projects I invest in. What's really going to move money and markets and frankly, therefore, change the world 
is doing things which make good commercial sense. And so focusing on things that are cheaper, cleaner, and more reliable than what went before, to me, is the most sustainable uh, you know, application and the, and the way that we're going to get to where we want to quicker, the quick, you know, most quickly. It, it, it's a reasonable segue. I wanted to ask you a few questions about p- policy. And, and one that comes to mind for me, is my, my take at least on government efforts around energy efficiency in general is that they haven't worked. They've yeah. never created the incentive for it to be financially self-sustaining, um, you know, for, 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 what it, for whatever reason. And, you know, UK example of sort of cheap loans and support for, for, for insulating yeah. houses yeah, and, yeah. and businesses. Do you have a sense, and this might be an unfair question, and as you say, residential is not something we're focusing on today, but do you have a sense of what we got wrong and how we, you know, how we might think about fixing it in terms of, you know, as you say, not, you know, if 98% of focus has been on the supply side of decarbonization, yeah. swing it back a bit more to the nega, the negawatts and the, and the demand side. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a massive optimist that in the commercial, industrial, and frankly, the public sector, which is slightly ironic from what I'm about to say, it's really about organization and deployment because energy efficiency and decentralized energy should be, is usually cheaper, cleaner, and more reliable than business as usual. The, the big challenge that policymakers are going to have to address, because I don't think the market can do it on its own in its entirety, is the residential sector. And that's that because there are very different dynamics, there's different credit issues associated with it. It's not a service finance type of model. You know, it's really about products and applications. And, um, you know, and there have been, and now having said that, you know, there are uh, regulatory innovations in the US, the things like, uh, you know, PACE, property assessed. Uh, models. But I think what's happening now is, and it's too early to answer your question, it's why I kind of want to kind of kick the residential story a little bit a few months down the road, talk about it next year, is because this is actually what finally the policymakers in Europe are, are grappling with, right? So so they've now said under the, there's a massive, massive, massive push for buildings renovation in Europe. It's called the renovation wave. It's the, the largest single uh, uh, destination for the European Commission green post-COVID stimulus goes into this thing that nobody really understands no. what it is, the building's <laughs> renovation. But what the, what the fund, which is brilliant because the underlying thesis is, it's a bit like a moonshot, a problem we don't know to solve. We don't know how to solve yet. We've got 34 million buildings, they said, in Europe, and we're going to retrofit them for energy mm-hmm. efficiency, and we're going to focus on this. And, and, and I think that's really, really great. Um, yeah. and, I think, and, and the US... It'll be interesting. <laughs> Really interesting, and, you know, and on a state and to a certain extent federal level, the US has had these sorts of you know mechanisms in place to help stimulate things like solar and other forms of energy efficiency. So I think we'll see some policy innovation, but the, uh, it's it's on the residential side. There's a huge role for the public sector to play. I think on mm-hmm. the commercial industrial public sector, meaning the actual buildings owned by the public sector, a there's no excuse for the public sector. I don't mind calling this out. We waste enormous amounts of money in the NHS, enormous through energy wastage, and uh, have a horrible and horribly inefficient supply story, um, mm. as well as sort of poor lighting HVAC. I think the NHS has done an incredible job, I should say, um, on its energy and everything else. It's incredible, but on energy, it's it's, it's changed twenty five percent of its lights. But going back to the point I made before, why on earth? <laughs> haven't, haven't the other 75% of it light bulbs been changed either? Yeah. And there's immense yeah. amounts of energy cost and wastage. The supply side of the story, there's a lot to go for. Public buildings in, in the UK and Europe need to get 
changed Interesting. so this and massive story yeah. and we're seeing that sort of thing on you know electric vehicle fleets a sort of yeah. fleet mandates government saying right we're going to lead the way uh, we don't quite know how, how it all works out but if we can create enough critical mass for the private sector to organize behind it and and uh you know electrify the police fleet in x city or or, or something like that, that that does seem to have been reasonably successful in the transportation space uh, yeah. as well yeah, no, I, th I think the public sector, in, at least in Europe, has the bit between its teeth. It doesn't have all the answers, but it's asking the questions. Yeah. I, I don't think we're going to get to just with an eye on the clock. It's been a fascinating conversation. I don't think we're going to get to what I thought we might before around uh, what you're doing with Tesco, you know, off-grid generation yeah. and implications for the grid of, grid of the future. Will it be centralised? Will it be decentralised? I did want to ask one other ESG question before we wrapped it up. And I saw... It, it relates to what we were saying before about sort of letting a thousand flowers bloom on how you define ESG. So I read recently, this British American tobacco was named one of the highest or perhaps the highest ESG performer on the FTSE 100. Yeah. That's not, that's not the company I would have put at the top no. of that list if you'd asked me who's the best ESG performer because, you know, it's tobacco and they're, you know, it's create, you know all, we know the tobacco story and why, why, yeah. why, it get ta why it gets, you know, we call taxes on it a sin tax in some ways. What's gone wrong? I mean, presumably they've defined their standards and, I, and I'm sure if, if, you were the, if I were the chief executive of British American Tobacco, I would work very hard to make sure I was defining our contribution to society very well. And I'm sure they've ticked a bunch of boxes that do that, but what's gone wrong? Has, has anything gone wrong there, do you think? Or is that is that the the, the kind of the, the, the flip side of self-determination of what, what what is in the social good? Well, I mean, when I started the firm, most ethical investment or investment in sustainability was about negative screening. So you know, so you would you would invest in in the public markets rather than in infrastructure, private equity infrastructure. But you'd you'd invest in things which, in the new EU taxonomy, either didn't do any harm or didn't do much harm. And it was about negative screening. And and I don't know how much the arguments moved on. Um, you know, and I, I don't. I'm, I really don't mean to be critical. So I'm not going to name any names. But you know, I I, I like to. I often think about savings, um, and partly because we run a publicly traded investment companies so we have a lot of savers that uh, trust us with their money and if, if if i were them what would i invest in and you know if you have a look at the sustainability indices run by the major platforms and you look at the top constituents of, the, of those sustainability indices it's very difficult to distinguish between that and the major normal uh, you know sort of mainstream indices and so investing in you know i think the it the, the what what are we looking for when we're describing that kind of company? Are we looking for a company that's making an active difference um, and you know, uh, you know, stimulating change, or are we applying old-fashioned negative screens, or are we looking at part of the part, asking part of the question but not answering asking another part of the question? Mm. So um, I, I think look, one of the things that happened within the ten-year period we talked about. You know, this, to this nirvana where you end up with the morning star A rating and everything's perfect and wonderful and sort of kosher for Pesach. In the meantime, I think what's going to happen is you're going to find a much better discrimination by investors about yeah. where they want to place their money and what they feel qualifies as a green or ESG investment. 
yeah. we're at a very very immature part of the market but i think that will mature dramatically in the next three to five yeah. years and that's and, what and, our investors are telling us already they're asking us very sophisticated questions interesting yeah and I, I and arguably the fact that we're talking about british american tobacco and its esg rating suggests that there's a you know the the, the eyebrows eyebrows get raised around these things and, and the industry will evolve Okay, so I'd like to draw it to a close. A fascinating conversation with just a few final questions to ask about some concepts in the energy transition and whether you think they are overrated or underrated. <laughs> so no need to elaborate. You, you feel free to elaborate, but if you, you know, even just a one-word answer is great as well. So the first concept is the impact of the ESG movement on deployment of capital now. Do you think the impact of the ESG movement on capital deployment now is overrated or underrated? I think it's probably marginally underrated. Okay. Although I think it's going to be a big driver of capital going forward. Interesting. Yeah. I think we're going to learn a lot. You know, oil as as we speak is over 70 bucks at the moment. I think we're going to we're going to learn it through this investment cycle what what um what, what so a, a bunch of what happens there. Yeah, okay. sh shareholders are asking a lot of questions. That's why I yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so let me, uh, so second, second question, which is a twist on the first one, the impact of the ESG movement on deployment of capital in 10 years. Uh, so as we stand here, do you think people overrate that or underrate that? I think it has to be consistent with my first answer. I think they, mm -hmm. they, they underrate it. Actually, okay. I, think, I think it's going to be bigger in the next 10 years than people, un uh, than people expect, although more and more acknowledgement of how important this is and how much money's moving in this sector. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, the third one is gas as a bridging fuel to a net zero economy. Oh, I'm, I'm afraid controversially going to have to say um, probably at least by the ESG community, probably underrated. And, and when, and when mm -hmm. I talk about that, I don't just mean natural gas, although actually I do think it's got a, a sadly a role to play, but I do, but, but, but I also think uh, all forms of molecules, um, mm -hmm. driven yeah. energy, green, green gas, um, you know, for transport fuels, as well as for uh, stationary assets, um, yeah. more efficient use of natural gas by bringing it into town through co-generation, capturing the pollution and so on. Just, I think, I think it's underrated. Interesting. Yeah. And I, 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 my, in my conversations, I think one of the biggest differences in views is between Europe and the rest of the world, mm. actually. I think, you know, most Europeans in the sector would say overrated and they're mm. saying, look, the cheapest megawatt hours, you know, 40, 40 pound carbon price or 40, 40 euro carbon price. Um, the cheapest megawatt hours are renewables and we can yeah. build plenty of them. But um, for, for power, but, you know, there's, a, there's, yeah. there's another discussion about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, another another good point. Okay, the final one is oil majors doing sustainability investment. Oh, interesting. Do, do you think it's a as a as a as a business strategy? Do you think it's overrated or underrated? I don't know how. I don't. Uh, I'm not convinced in all cases, and I have to say that we have to be careful what I say here. Not convinced in all cases, being an oil major is a competitive advantage in this mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. Okay. There's plenty we could dig into there, but I won't yeah. because I have, have an eye on the time. So as a natural time to finish, um, Jonathan, it was a pleasure uh, to hear your pretty unique perspective, I, I think, particularly around ESG and, and energy efficiency, uh, as well as as a business founder. Um, so many thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, wonderful to speak. Thank you so much for having me today.
That was John Federson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora, speaking to Jonathan Maxwell, CEO of Sustainable Development Capital, LLP. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.